us, we realize once again what a great privilege we have that we do not live under the law, but we live under grace. And uh, thank you for reminding us of that. I would just give you uh, two other prayer requests. Um, the elder board needs to make a big decision about replacing me. See, they called me the senior pastor. The next guy they're calling the lead pastor. That's because I'm old. The next guy might be young. And um, so pray for them. But the servant board now has to make a decision because, as most of you know, Mindy is moving on. Uh, She's been our office assistant for the past six and a half years. And uh, we have just, as of about an hour ago, interviewed our third candidate. All three valid and uh, possible candidates for that job. And the servant board now has to make a decision of which one of those three. So uh, that doesn't sound like fun. And please, by all means, uh, the Garden Tractor Pool Ministry is coming up in just about two weeks. And uh, just pray specifically for a window of opportunity. Pray for Dave Lamb as he gives the gospel. And just pray for safety and that uh, all of the workers from Garden Chapel here, that we would be a testimony. Uh, Many times more is uh, caught than taught in these things. And um, we need to present that kind of a testimony to these guys and gals that show up there. This morning we are looking at, didn't I do it yet? Okay, first, uh, kindergarten through third grade are dismissed. I got carried away uh, for junior church. Looks like Mr. Green is going to be their teacher. Okay. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And uh, that's a very short verse. Uh, We are going to look at it uh, in some detail. Uh, Many times we have a one mindset uh, when we see the word adultery. The Bible uses that at least three different ways. We will look at all three. Uh, then we will concentrate on the one that we normally think of. When you think of adultery, I want you to put one word in there that's above and beyond all the other descriptions, and that is the word unfaithful. If you remember that, you will catch what adultery is about. I do believe that this commandment gives us the basis of sexual morality, and it is the part that protects that building block of all society, and that is marriage and family. This morning, uh, you cannot commit adultery if there's not a committed relationship. Just like when we look at a few other commands that we haven't looked at yet, uh, if private property, uh, the right to private property is not something that God gave us, then stealing doesn't mean anything. If there is an objective truth, thou shalt bear not bear false witness, doesn't mean anything. This morning, we're going to look first at marriage, because thou shalt not commit adultery doesn't mean anything if there isn't some kind of committed relationship that you can be unfaithful against. So we're going to look at it that way, and uh, just put that as a basis. I encourage you, because there's some hard things that are going to be said. I have taken more grief and more heat for this subject than any other single subject in the past 33 years by people. Um, I don't, you know, apologize for that because I think I teach exactly what the Bible says, but uh, it doesn't always go over well. So please hang with me to the end because, praise the Lord, we do not 
live under the law. If we did, most of us, if not all of us, are in big trouble. So let's look at the whole idea of what is marriage. First of all, as I already said, the idea of adultery requires the necessity of something that is validly called marriage that can be violated. This next part at the bottom of the slide here, uh, I have said this to people and they said, you see marriage as a contract. That's not very romantic. And my response is always, I never said it was romantic. But here's the way the Bible presents marriage. It is indeed a legal contract. It is obligations that we have toward each other. And many times that part of it is by the government. The government has a vested interest in marriages. They know that. They may not be very friendly to them these days, uh, toward marriages these days, but they have a vested interest because marriage is the building block of any congregation, of any family, of any government, of just about anything you can think of. If marriages aren't secure and stable, a lot of stuff falls apart very quickly. And so marriage can be viewed and should be viewed as a contract with legal obligations. For example, if you have a deadbeat dad who leaves his family, the government says you will pay to support your wife and your children. For example, that's just one example. It is also a covenant. A covenant is something between two people. And there are stipulations that go with that. In this case, the stipulation is, I will be faithful to you. That's between the husband and the wife. That is a covenant that they have, and I say it in every marriage I perform, until death do us part. Why? It's a covenant of faithfulness. I will be faithful to you until the end. And then there's a vow. A vow is something that is between a single person and God. And so now you have two people individually making a vow before God uh, and obligating themselves to carry out the biblical principles dealing with marriage. God makes it very clear, better not to make a vow than to make a vow and break it. I believe God means that. And so when you put all of these together... You see, marriage has a lot of cement that should hold it together. Unfortunately, marriage is under attack. And uh, part of that is adultery, not the only part, but that's part of it. But marriage involves a number of things. Because I've had people say, marriage is this and this and this and this. Uh, Marriage entails a lot of different things. And I'd just like to give you a, a, a small list of them. But there are rights, there are privileges, there are benefits, and there are also responsibilities. First of all, it forms a legal and or religious and culturally recognized union between man and woman. Man and woman. I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. But it is something that the law recognizes. Whatever religion, I don't like the word religion, but it could be another religion other than Christianity. They recognize it. And the culture around us recognizes that this is a valid union. It also establishes a legal family for any possible children. Children need security and stability. And making it something that's solid does that. 
The Bible also says better to marry than to burn. Sexuality is given by God. It is a good thing, but it is to be used only in the bonds of marriage. And so marriage gives that opportunity for sexuality to be carried out. And so you avoid sexual sin if you're married and are practicing sexual things. To grant the husband and wife a monopoly to that sexuality. It is not to be spread around. Any marriage that has a third or fourth party in it is something that is going to be a really big problem. Well, it's already adultery at that point. It's to give the husband and wife the rights to each other's labor. Remember from the very beginning, it said the the two shall become one flesh. You're in this together. Not only for you're working together, that's a partnership, but it's also even the emotional things that go with that. And it's also about that what is the husband's is also the wife's and what is the wife's is also the husband's. If something happens to to my wife uh, before I die, uh, whatever is hers is is mine. And if the flip side is also the case. Marriage provides that. It also provides for that security for the benefit of the children. I kind of already got ahead of myself on that one, but that is true. It creates a socially significant relationship between husband, wife, and their families. If you haven't thought about this, I'm going to give you something to think about. I do this in every premarital uh, counseling session, or when I do premarital counseling, I always do this. You only marry one person, but you get a family. If you don't like their family, you better check. You might not want to marry that person because guess what? You marry the person, but you get their family. Think about that. Uh, my in-law kids, I, uh, Brad's sitting there. I just looked over there. I, I consider him just like one of my own children because that's what happens. You get a family, and, and uh, he has to put up with me. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, but it, it provides that social relationship, and it assures that the obligations of a husband and wife are carried out. And that's a broad statement, and I realize that. But there are obligations that you have to each other. Marriage is recognized by possibly all of the above here, and in some cases, not quite all of them. Marriage may look different in different situations, different parts of the world, different cultures. For example, when where Ben and Nikki are, they are introducing a biblical form of marriage. You, if you get their prayer letters and their emails and stuff, you've just seen that they just had a big wedding there. Uh, but it didn't always look that way. It didn't look like a Christian wedding. Uh, but it was recognized by the tribal situation. And everybody knew that's husband and wife. Uh, They knew that. So it's recognized by the state, that government. It's recognized by religious authority. That could be like Garden Chapel or uh, any other church, tribal group, um, and peers. And particularly when I say peers and, uh, you know, the community, that's your culture. In the Bible, they didn't have a marriage like we do here. You went into the bridal chamber and you're married. If you don't believe that, 
Check out what the Bible says. Isaac went into the tent, and they were married. Uh, that kind of thing. Now, the part in red in the middle there is the one I want you to concentrate on. It is always a public declaration and recognized publicly. This is not something that two people decide on their own, and that's all that's to it. Because you are held accountable for this relationship in lots of different ways. Your families will hold you accountable. The government will hold you accountable. Your church friends will hold you accountable. It just, and the culture around you in general, will hold you accountable. Now, one of the things, and again, I don't like the word religious, but I use that for the purposes of this sermon, is that we have marriage license. That's civil marriage at the bottom. It creates rights and privileges that you have as a couple. For example, uh, it gives you the ability to file your income taxes as a couple, and hopefully that helps some. I think it does yet. It may go away. But it also, we have what we would call the religious part of the ceremony. When I do a ceremony, the only part that's really governmental that meets the civil part, by the authority vested in me by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I pronounce you man and wife. The rest of it is religious. It's Christian. Um, But our Christian view of marriage is much higher. For example, in Pennsylvania, there's no-fault divorce. You can get divorced in three months if if the the spouse doesn't uh, object to it. Uh, Your marriage can, you know, uh, years and years can be over in three months. But what do we say when we do a ceremony? Till death do us part. We have a higher standard, and we should have a higher standard. There's lots more to it than that. Uh, the government doesn't come after you and put you in jail if you commit adultery. But we say, hold it a second. You made a vow before God. You made a covenant to each other. And you, we want to hold you accountable to that, and we will hold you accountable to that. Now, let's look at the way adultery is used in the Bible, because this whole idea of unfaithfulness or adultery is used, as I already mentioned, three different ways. First of all, it can be a nation or a people group uh, that is apostatizing against their God. That's Israel. And we'll see the verses that back that up. But it's Israel being unfaithful to the God who had a covenant with them. It is the normal one that we normally think of, somebody who has an extramarital voluntarily, uh, voluntary sexual intercourse outside of their marriage. That's the one we normally think of. That's the commandment. But the New Testament, as always, has a higher standard. That higher standard says that if we have lustful sexual desire towards someone that's not our spouse, even without ever touching them, no physical activity whatsoever, you are already having an affair of the heart. We'll look at all of these, and I'll show you how it's used. So listen. It's not simply, did I do something physically with somebody I shouldn't have been doing something? No, the New Testament says it's much more than that. It is faithfulness of the mind and the emotions. Let's go back and see how this works biblically. Uh, It refers to idolatry in Jeremiah chapter 3. It says, for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, that's where I get that whole thing about uh, faithlessness is 
Israel was not faithful to their God. And it says that was idolatry. Uh, She polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. They made idols. Instead of, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me, they made their idols, have no graven images. They made all their graven images. God said, that's adultery. He goes on, it even gets worse. He says, your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. They committed adultery. They were, and this is not talking about individuals, this is talking about the nation. They were well-fed, lusty horses, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. They acted like a bunch of animals. That's really what it comes down to. He says, that's adultery. He goes on to say in Ezekiel chapter 23, for they have committed adultery with their idols and even caused their sons to pass through the fire to them as food. You know how bad it got in their idolatry, in their apostasy, in their their idol worship? They actually offered their children as sacrifices. And God says, that's unfaithfulness, that's idolatry. You say, well, that's all in the Old Testament. It's also true in the New Testament. The New Testament, in speaking to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation, it said to one of the churches, it said, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, the, the name comes from the Old Testament. You know her. She was a despicable character. Her husband wasn't any better. His name was Ahab. Uh, they were about as bad as you can get as king and queen of, of Israel. But they had a lady there. You know how we do that sometimes. You'll say, that person's acting like Hitler or whatever. You're using the term for something else. Well, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. They commit acts of immorality. Behold, I will throw her on the bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And so he says, even into the church age, it continues that those that are unfaithful to God are seen as committing adultery, but not in the sense that they're going outside of their marriage. They are simply being unfaithful to their God. Even goes further than that, because it says, if you love the world more than you love God, you're an adulteress. Notice what it says. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You ever notice? All of you have friends that you know that someone committed adultery. And they never go, oh yeah, they committed adultery, but it's not a big deal. I've never seen that one. I've had to deal with this for years now. I started dealing with it before as a pastor, but I've dealt with it over the past 33 years over and over again. And I have never seen the spouse that was cheated on going, that's eh, not a big deal. No, it causes hostility. It causes enemies to be formed. He says, if you are a friend with the world and you're a Christian, you're causing hostility with God. You're becoming, notice, I'm not making this up, makes himself an enemy of God. God says, if the world is more important and you're more fond of the world and you have a better friendship with the world than you do with God, you're an idolater. idolater. Uh, I'm sorry, an adulteress um, in the way God looks at it. So that's the New Testament. 
but it's also used of those that didn't recognize Jesus Christ for who he was. He says, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And you know, he goes on to quote from Jonah that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And then he goes on to say, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, he had shown himself to them, and all they said is, well, we're not sure we believe you. Show us a sign. You know, we want something spectacular. And he said, no, you're an evil and adulterous generation. All you want is a sign. You want something spectacular. I'm here, and I am much better and much higher and much greater than Jonah. He called them adulterous. Notice, that's the unfaithfulness. They didn't believe what Jesus said. Now, we get to the one where we normally think of adultery. And there are two verses, there are lots of them in the Old Testament, but these two really get right to the point. And I want you to remember, because if you, you need to remember what I'm saying here from these two verses, because I'm going to tell a story at the end, and if you don't catch these verses, the story's not going to make a whole lot of sense. So, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So here's the deal. God says, I take this whole thing seriously. In the Old Testament, under the law, there was a death penalty attached to adultery. Didn't matter if you're a man or a woman, it was adultery. Notice, both of them die. Remember that. You're going to see it again here. In the next one, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, simply says this, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The, the woman, I mean, I'm sorry, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Again, both of them were equally culpable. The same consequence would come to both of them. Now, we don't live under the law. Praise the Lord, we don't live under the law. Because we're all in big trouble if we lived under the law. Because the law only brought death. Every commandment has a death penalty attached to it, except for the very last one, and that is thou shalt not covet. And if you covet, you will break one of these others. How do I know that? Well, let's keep going. Because the New Testament says that adultery has to do with a heart attitude. Now, when heart is used by itself, it includes the thinking process, the intellect, and also the emotions, sensibilities, and desires. If it says heart and mind, as it does other places in the Bible, then heart just simply means the emotional, experimental, and mind means, obviously, the thinking process. But he says here, and he only uses heart, so he's talking about our thinking and our emotions. He says, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Things which defile the man, make you unclean, unpure. He said it comes from the heart. Almost every case of adultery I've ever had to deal with always started with wrong thinking. Almost always. Usually pornography is involved, if you want to know the truth. Uh, But it's 
fooling around, flirting, and all kinds of other stuff long before anything actually happens. Just the way it is. But the verse of the passage I usually go to is not that one, but the next one in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and this is something that Jesus uses specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard, you've heard it said, you've been taught this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice that. The standard is much higher. The one in the Old Testament... It has bad consequences. It's very, very specific. You have done something physical. Here he says, no, if it's in your mind and your heart already, you're already that bad. That's how God looks at it. You've got wrong thinking. You've got wrong attitude. You've got wrong motive. You're just thinking totally in the wrong direction. He says, that's equal with the adultery that you see in the Old Testament under the law. The standard is higher, always is. That's why anyone that says, I'm living by the law, is living at way too low a standard. So, where do we go from here? God makes it clear that he judges adultery. In Romans chapter 7, the unique passage, because it is actually talking about the law, and he uses marriage and this whole idea of adultery as an illustration. He says, The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. If the husband dies, she's released from the law. When Christ died, we were released from the law, just in case you want to know how this works. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Why? She's unfaithful to her husband. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Why? She's not being unfaithful to her husband. And uh, he uses that, and I'm I'm not going into that because that's not my purpose this morning, but he's using this to illustrate why we live in a different dispensation than the law. Because Christ has died, everything changes. And we have a new direction. But if you want to know, you go, well, that didn't really talk a whole lot about judgment. It did. But This one here is the one. If you're going to memorize one verse about marriage or an adultery, this would be a good place to start. Nice and short and to the sweet and to the point. But it says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. You already know, because I've defined this word honor a number of times lately, it means to be treated as valuable, to be seen as precious. It's weighty. It's something that really, really counts. Has a lot of weight to it. He said, marriage is to be seen as something very, very important. Period. And the marriage bed undefiled. No immorality should be in the marriage. Sex inside the marriage, that's wonderful, it's great, it's God-given. Anything that's from the outside, not good. Anything going to the outside, not good. Why? Fornicators, that's the word pornea. We get pornography from that. It's basically any kind of immorality, uh, sexual immorality. And adulterers, God will judge. Now, we don't live under the law. Doesn't have a death penalty today. But, but, 
God's already made known his attitude toward adultery. He's not approving it. He's not for it. He's just going to bring consequences. He says, God still brings consequences. I have never seen anything of people um, indulging in sexual immorality or adultery where there were not horrible consequences. And I mean life-altering horrible consequences. Uh, It gets pretty ugly pretty quick. Now, here's where I want you to really pay attention. Because you're going to hear some stuff from me that you may not like. But this one here you need to hear. Because in James chapter 2, starting at verse 10, going through 13, it says this. For he who said, do not commit adultery, and he also said, don't commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, you break one of the, the Ten Commandments, you're still a transgressor. You may not have broken every single one of them, but you're still a transgressor. So, speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Notice, not the Old Testament law. The law of liberty. Other places it's called the law of Christ. Other places it's called the royal law. But that's not the Old Testament law. That's the law of Christ. The law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. There was a year when five couples came to me and said, we want to get married. And I said, I cannot in a clear conscience and conviction marry you. And I thought maybe God was giving me the uh, uh, responsibility of populating other churches because they said, that's it. If you won't marry us, we're out of here. Uh, and, And they went to other churches and got married. And you know what? Others said, okay, we understand where you're going, and I'll explain this in a minute, Um, but we're going to keep coming. You know what I've said to every one of those? Even though I can't marry you, I will not treat you any different than I treat anybody else. I will never treat you as a second-class citizen. I will never put you down because of what you do. That's not what I'm going to do. You know why? Because I have been shown mercy. I have been shown mercy. So have you. You turn around and treat other people badly? He says, you know what? He says, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Don't expect that you can treat other people badly and God is going to just bless you. It doesn't work that way. I've told those people, you know what? I'm telling you, I don't, I don't believe it's biblical what you're doing, but I'm not going to treat you badly. And some of them, even one of them that came here and uh, they found out that I wouldn't have married them, even though they never asked me to, they were already married. They said, well, you wouldn't have married us, so we have to leave the church. I'm like, did I treat you bad? I actually went to their house and I said, did I do something wrong? Did I treat you badly? Did I? Nope, you've never done that, but that's just the way it is. You know what? I want people to treat me with some mercy also. You know why? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Doesn't mean God doesn't judge sin. But mercy is where we should live. That's what we need to do. I need to move on. Now, this, is the one, this next few slides are the ones that always get me in trouble. 
because the New Testament talks about remarriage after divorce as adultery. It does it numerous times. The first two are Luke and Mark. Luke is written to the Jews, uh, to, I'm sorry, to the Greeks, and uh, Mark is written to the Romans. They were Gentiles, like most of us. It's very clear. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Just straightforward. He said, this is not what you're supposed to do. In Mark, to the Romans, he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces a husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. So it goes both ways. He says, you know what? You made a vow till death do us part, but you parted and then you go get married. And when you do, it's written in present tense, which simply means you are violating and being unfaithful to the first commitment you made, the first covenant you had, the first vow before God, and the first contract you made before the government. But when it comes to the Jewish people, there's something different in each time. It's mentioned two times, Matthew chapter 5, and I am not going into detail here. I've done it in the past. If you want to know how this works and where it goes, read Matthew chapter 1, Joseph and Mary. You're going to find out this has to do with the betrothal period. It's the only place you find that, uh, and the Jews are the only one that had, had this. But it says, whoever sends his wife away, uh, Moses said, give her a certificate of divorce. That comes from, that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And he says, and notice the words again, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, that's not adultery, that's the word pornea, sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever uh, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's something in that verse you will not find in any other verse in all of Scripture. It says, something that I do makes somebody else do something wrong. That's the only place you can find that in the Bible, unless you can find something that I've never found yet. But it's simply, in in the Jewish society, the woman would have had no means of support. Her husband was the means of support. And if he bails out, he puts her in dire straits that probably the only way she can subsist is to get remarried, causing her to commit adultery. It's the only way I can figure out. I've never heard anybody with a better explanation. It's the only one I know of. But in Matthew chapter 19, this is the one most people go to. It says basically the same kinds of things. He says simply that if I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. This is what you need to know. The word immorality, again, is the same as unchastity in the other one. It's just sexual immorality in, in the broad sense. Because with the Jewish people, they had a betrothal period. Think Mary and Joseph. Mary got pregnant. He had the right to divorce her, and that's the what it actually says in the text. Put her away. That's the word divorce. Uh, put her away secretly. He could have done it a couple different ways. Uh, if she got pregnant during the betrothal, he could divorce her, and he could go and get remarried. If he just said, you know what, I saw another better-looking woman over here. I'm just going to throw her aside like yesterday's newspaper. He doesn't have the right to get remarried. That's only in Matthew, which was written to the Jewish people, and only do you find the whole idea of the betrothal with Mary and Joseph uh, in there. One of the things that you need to know, and I've been accused of saying, well, 
adultery then and all these kinds of things, that's the unforgivable sin. No, 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 a thousand times no. I've used this verse uh, a week or two ago, but it simply gives a list of sin to the Corinthian people, and he says, and such were some of you. Were. You know what he's saying? He said, that church was full of people who had been fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Man, they had a church that looks like a lot of churches, right? It was bad. He says, such were some of you. You don't have to stay there. You were washed, middle tense. You washed yourself up. You trusted Christ. And then, passive, you were sanctified. God took you from your sin, whatever it happened to be, and put you in his church. He justified you. He took you from being one who was guilty and declared you legally right with God. Folks, the only unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. That's the only one. That's the unforgivable sin. Because if you, won't, if you reject Christ, you're not saved. All other sin can be forgiven. So don't ever think that any sin is unforgivable. That's why the gospel is so great. That's why it's so great when we look at what Christ has done for us. His blood covers all sin. Not select sin. Not the ones that you think are not so bad. No. Think of the worst sin you can think of. It's covered. It's covered. There's nothing anybody can do about it. Because Christ is the one that said, the Bible said, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. A final account. I'll make it real quick. You know the account. It's John chapter 8. Jesus on the Mount of Olives is uh, there for whatever reason, a group of guys comes along, and they're dragging this woman with them. I'm using sanctified imagination, so I'm paraphrasing here, so don't think I'm quoting anything. Go look it up and read it for yourself. But they drag him up and said, we caught this woman in adultery. And oh, by the way, we don't only know that she uh, committed adultery. We caught her in the very act of adultery. Notice what I said, and that's exactly what it says in the text. We caught her in the very act of adultery. You know what that means? It's one of three things. These guys were peeping toms, and they were looking in somebody's window. It was one of their friends, and they were trying to get him out of trouble, and they were trying to get rid of evidence, or, and the one I believe, one or more of the men in that crowd was the guy who committed adultery with her. And uh, their gig was up, and they wanted to get rid of evidence. Now, remember, he said, what's the law say should we do? And they said, well, we should stone her. Wow. Were they right? Were they half right? They were half right. They were half right. Okay. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Deuteronomy 22, 22. 
If you're going to stone that woman, there better be a guy there too. Okay? There better be a guy there. Both together. Karen, I'm glad you're not the judge. Okay. <laughs> anyway, i got to get finish my stories because you want to go home for lunch. Point is, they used the law for their own purpose. They said, she needs to be stoned. Jesus writes, goes down, sanctified imagination. He's going, do you guys think that you can buffalo me? Because <laughs> he knows the law better than they do. Then he looks up and said, okay, which one of you doesn't have any sin? Remember, they came and they said, we saw the very act of adultery. That means they're hiding truth. He said, okay, if you guys don't cough them up, all of you guys are living in sin because you're trying to get her killed and you're letting your buddy off. The old guys go, whoa. Man, oh man, did he put us to shame. And they quietly turned and walked away. And then the young guys are like, why are the old guys walking away? I mean, we, we were following after them. We thought they knew what they were doing. And then they realized, whoa, we've been had. <laughs> and they walk away. Now we're back to Jesus and the woman. She's there, and I'm, I still picture her. She's kind of still in the dirt there because they've been treating her pretty roughly. And he looks at her and says, uh, uh, where are those that, you know, who's condemning you? Who's doing this? He said, no man. Hey, not a single one of them was willing to throw a rock. And he says, neither I condemn you go and sin no more. Now, people have said, oh, well, Jesus was overlooking and sin doesn't get judged. No, no, that's not the case. If, if there would have been two people there, a man and a woman, uh, he would have said, that's what the law says, and they could have stoned him if they wanted to. But he was making it clear. They were misusing the law. He, was he being merciful? The answer is, of course he was. He could have stopped all those guys and said, okay, which one of you is it? Or coughed the guy up. He could have done that, but he didn't. Praise the Lord, we live in a time when the work of Christ has already been done. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Does it mean God doesn't judge and there aren't consequences to adultery? The answer is no. It's not that case. The point is, God is merciful. And if we want to be shown mercy, we also need to be merciful. So I can say exactly what I just said today and say, nope, this is the way God looks at adultery. You know, and be cut and dry about it. On the other hand, we need to understand that God has been merciful to me. You can say the same thing. God has been merciful to me. And I need to be merciful to other people. That's the way we need to look at it. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. He has triumphed over the law and given us a message of reconciliation, not condemnation. The law condemns. Christ brought grace and truth. I encourage you, sin, stay away from it. Because there are consequences. 
You'll pay a price. There's no doubt about it. The Old Testament, it was death. New Testament, it's still judgment. It's still consequences. But we live at a time because of what Christ has done that we have been shown mercy and can show mercy to others. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, these are not fun subjects to even talk about. They're hard. But Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for the work on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection power. And thank you that we can be washed, we can be sanctified, and we can be justified. Lord, I pray that if we need to confess something, we get it confessed so that we can move on and live life to the fullest for Christ. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of how you look at sin, but what Christ has done in the face of sin. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Go with God.